And we'll get going here this morning. Welcome to The Vine. If you're new here, I'm Zach, one of the pastors. So good to have you all with us. Uh, I'd love to meet you if you're uh, new. This time of greeting one another is, is for just getting to know people, and we really value relationships around here. So if you're not a new person here and you meet someone that's new, would you go out of your way, please, to make them feel welcome? That would be great, okay? Um, God has created us to be relational, and so we want to interact with one another relationally, okay? Um, I want to start with an announcement this morning. Uh, as, as Christians, we're called to make disciples. That's built into our mission statement as a church. We're a Vine Church is a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration so that seeking to make disciples is very, very important to us. And one of the ways that we do that is through what happens in the other side of the building. And so as a church, we want to come alongside families to help little ones understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to love God, understand what it means to forsake uh, a worldview of earning your salvation and embrace Jesus' worldview of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And so if you resonate with that, as we all should, um, we would just ask you to consider serving in next gen. Now, there's a big need right now, okay? We're hoping to have in the fall maybe class, classrooms up to fifth grade. And so we're needing somewhere around, I think, 20 new volunteers to volunteer, not on a necessarily every week basis, although if you were willing, that would be awesome, but there's varying levels of commitment level. Um, and so it doesn't have to be something huge uh, in terms of time. And so if you're willing, do this for me. Go to the sign-up tab on the top of the website, thevinemadison.org, okay? And there's a button up top that says sign up. And that's very important for you to know where that is because a lot of our stuff at, at, ch- at our church in terms of getting connected flows through that little button, okay? Uh, you'll hear more about that at the end of the service. But spe- specifically with our need for next gen um, and discipling kids, if you're willing, go to the sign-up tab and click on that, and we are wanting to get in touch with you and help you get plugged in to help disciple those kids, okay? All right. So today, uh, we're continuing our series in looking at Jesus's parables, his stories, the stories that he told that illustrated what it means to embrace the rule and reign of King Jesus in the world. What, what does that mean? What's his kingdom look like? Okay. And so today we're going to continue with that, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Luke 14. And I've asked Janet to come and read that. Luke 14, starting in verse 12. Luke 14, starting in verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, 
for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for how you promised to be with us and to never forsake us. Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word that is evidence of that, that we're not left alone in our existence without a word from God. Um, We're not here just to figure out uh, meaning of life on our own and try to create meaning, but we can discover your meaning for us and how you created us to be and how it's defined in your word. So give us soft hearts, open eyes to see, open ears to hear, hearts to receive this morning from your word. Would you help us, God? We need your help by the power of your spirit. We need it desperately. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a couple things that are, that are very, very um, central to how God has created human beings. Number one, we relate to one another in relationships. And number two, we eat. You ever, you ever notice that? We, we have relationships with each other, and we eat. We eat food, right? And I think that building relationships with people around food is kind of central to how God has wired us as human beings. Now, why would I say that? Well, it's pretty simple. There's a lot of reasons, but the first one is quite obvious. You look at almost any culture in the world, and they have a high value of relationships oriented around eating together, right? It's almost observable in every culture of the world. Now, maybe there's some cultures in the world where you, like, go get your food and go hide off in the corner and huddle up like Smeagol in the ring and just, like, eat your food, you know? But I've never seen it, right? If you think of, like, the diverse cultures that we interact with here at the Vine, I think of, like, a missional triangle from Madison to North Africa to Ecuador and and back to Madison. Diverse cultures, South America, Africa, North America, very, very different. All three cultures have the value of relating to one another in relationship around food, Here's another one. Think about this. At the end of all known history, as the Bible presents it, what we see is this thing called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what is that? It's God's people relating to one another, celebrating Him, and it's the marriage supper where there's eating and drinking and celebrating. It's a party, okay? So if you see a practice eating and celebrating together, you see a practice transcending our existence 
here on this earth as we know it right now and playing a huge role in the scope of eternity in the new heavens and the new, new earth, then it would tend to follow that this is core to who God has created us to be and how he is, right? In addition, in terms of how he is, think of Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus came eating and drinking, And to his opponents, that was a critique. But what that means is Jesus wasn't afraid of a good party. He wasn't afraid to hang out. He wasn't too stoic to attend a gathering of food and relationships. And today, we're going to see one scene from Jesus' life where he's at a party. He's with other people relating in relationship with food, okay, And he has some things to say about how these fundamental realities of our human experience, how they should look, how they should feel, how how we should operate in that environment. And there's two big things I want you to see today from our text, okay? Two big things I want you to see. Number one, we're going to hear from Jesus about what our parties should look like here on earth. What should food and fellowship look like here on earth? And then secondly, we're going to hear about Jesus' eternal party and what that looks like. And then here's the question that I want you to think about. How do those two relate to one another? How did our human temporal parties relate to Jesus' divine eternal party? What do those two have to do with one another? So let's dive in. Luke 14, starting in verse 12. All right, so let me, let me set the context, okay? So if you just glance back at the beginning of chapter 14, I want you to see a couple things. Now, whenever we read our Bibles, we always want to know what's going around, um, around the text that we're looking at, okay? Context, context, context. Context is everything when you read your Bible. And so what's the context? Well, the context is one Sabbath, verse 1, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, okay? So it's a Sabbath day, very important day in ancient Jewish culture and Jewish culture to this day, okay? And so you would have food and fellowship on a Sabbath. There'd be a big Sabbath meal, okay? And he's hanging out with Pharisees, and look at verse 3, lawyers, responding to the lawyers and Pharisees. So these are religious elite people, okay? And Jesus is feeling a little punchy. He's being confrontational, okay? And the first thing he does is this guy shows up who has a, a who has dropsy, end of verse 2. And the, these religious leaders, they had all these made-up rules. And they thought that if they could ratchet up the requirements of holiness through all of these man-made, made-up, stringent rules, that somehow God would look down on their holiness and their attempts to be, you know, overachievers, the varsity squad of holiness— And God would look at that and go, okay, you're holy and you're trying really hard. I'll let you be in heaven. That's how their worldview operated. And so one of those rules was, well, on the Sabbath, you can't work. And healing somebody is a work. And so if you heal someone on the Sabbath, then you are um, disobeying God's law. Well, it wasn't God's law. That was the problem. It was man-made rules that Jesus did not adhere to 
because these guys were, totally had their worldview screwed up because they didn't understand grace in the least. They under, understood trying to climb a ladder of good deeds, and that's not the kingdom of God. And so this guy comes in, he's needy, he has a disease, and Jesus, Jesus heals him and says, you guys, this, your man-made rules, they're nothing. They don't achieve anything, okay? I will not submit to them. So first confrontation. Second confrontation is there in verse 7, and he's basically looking at how they operate in their parties and how they're jockeying and posturing and all this pretense about how awesome they are in terms of where they place themselves at the party, right? And in certain cultures, there's, there's going to be the head of the table, and the head of the table would be reserved for whoever's highest in that uh, relational structure there in terms of who's there. And he's saying, guys, don't do that. Don't like, be like competing for the places of honor. It's like if you really understand who you are, if you really understand your spiritual need, you won't have to jockey for position. You'll be willing to be humble. Because in light of who God is, you'll be quick to embrace your humility. So he's saying, guys, don't do that. And then he, he comes to our section here in verse 12. And he wants to talk about the guest list of their parties. He looks around the room and he, and he wants to understand, how, how do you guys determine who you invite to your parties? So he's, he's talking to them then, and I think he's talking to us now how we should consider food and fellowship. Look at what it says in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Now, I'll stop right there. I want to train us to ask questions of what we're reading. It's very, very important. Ask questions of what you're reading. So let's ask questions right now. Jesus, why? Why should we do this? Why shouldn't we invite those people, Jesus? Like, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your family. I mean, shouldn't family be a priority, right? And what if our neighbors just happen to be rich? I mean, you said that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, so how does that work? I'm not supposed to hang out with my rich neighbors just because they're rich? Now, I don't think Jesus is asking us to neglect family, or friends. He clearly didn't do that. And we also see that Jesus is willing to hang out with all sorts of people. He hung out with marginalized poor people, but he also hung out with rich people too. I mean, he's at a rich dude's house right now. He's at an elite one percenter type person right now. But I think he's pushing against an attitude that was prevalent in society then. I think is also true now. Look at what he says he says, don't invite the rich people, the important people, the cool kids. Why, Jesus? And now he gets down to the level of our motives. Look at what it says, verse 12. Lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. So he's, he's pushing against a culture that's strictly stratified. The ancient Middle East was like this. You only have table fellowship with those that are like you. You only hang out with those who can help you maintain the position of privilege in the culture. Now, why would a society then, then, or now, why would it structure itself that way? Well, it's not hard to figure out. We, we desire to feel important, right? 
It's a pride issue, right? I want to think highly of myself, and if I hang out with high people, then I can think highly of myself, right? There's some reciprocation there. Or maybe you give to rich people, and then they're going to maybe hook you up in return, right? just makes sense. It makes sense to leverage your relationships to benefit you. Or does it? I remember listening to a podcast one time of a kind of a, a self-help guru guy. He's really, really famous. Um, and, you know, it's not all bad stuff. There's some practical wisdom there. But I remember clearly listening to this guy, and he was talking about his kind of recipe for being successful in life. And he said, basically, identify what you want to do. And then go find those people that are already doing it and doing it really well and, and go get them to like you. So how do you get them to like you? Well, just serve them like crazy. Just do anything they need done and just go above and beyond to serve them and they will like you. And if they like you, they will reward you with giving you what you want. This is just soft prostitution. I'll do what you want me to do as long as I get the right kickbacks. I remember in a, in a former life over a decade ago, I, I worked as a musician in the, in the Christian music industry in Nashville. And there was always this um, competitive vibe of needing to get ahead. And this isn't just, um, this is not just the Christian music industry. I mean, this is lots of industries in, in our culture, you know, the, the, the desire to get ahead is oftentimes very, very real. But in the Christian music industry, it was, it was very present, um, where there should have been a desire to make Jesus' name great. If you wanted to have a successful career, there was a tension there because you also had to figure out, in some sense, how to make your name great, right? Sell some records, have people come to your shows, da-da-da-da-da. So there's always this need to try to get to know the important people, the gatekeepers, Right? The people that if I can get to know them, maybe they'll help me out. And there was this annual conference called the GMA, the Gospel Music Association. And once a year, all of the gatekeepers would get together, and all the artists would get together, and all the managers and the booking agents. And everyone would just kind of um, organize themselves at a conference in Nashville, and everyone was there. And I always remember, you know, it was just this kind of weird environment because when everyone has that mindset of who's in the room and who do I need to talk to? Like, who's here that could potentially help me out? Um, You're talking to someone, and they're right here, but you can always see them looking over your shoulder, right? Like, who else is here? Like, I'm kind of present with you, but you might not be that important, so I'm going to be looking for the next important person. And, And it really created this kind of superficial, inauthentic, and just kind of slimy environment. You know, And Jesus is saying, if you want to work on leveraging your relationships to get ahead in life, you can do that, and there will be rewards. That's what he said. They, 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 they will repay you, right? See it there? Famous people, powerful people, if you seek to hang out with them, you'll probably get some kickbacks. But there are better kickbacks to be had. He says, don't go after that that reward. And notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus did not say it's wrong to want kickbacks. 
It's wrong to seek a reward. He doesn't say that. Isn't that peculiar? He says you just have to pursue the right ones in the right way and from the right person. Look at what it says right here. I'm not making this up. Jesus is saying, don't look for a kickback from rich human beings. Pursue a kickback, but pursue a reward or a kickback from the greatest person in the universe and do it his way. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. It's just code for marginalized. The weak, the broken, the needy. Those that aren't at the center of the cool kids party. Those that are on the margins. So why should we do this, Jesus? Verse 14. And you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. What? That doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense in light of the next sentence. Because or for, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Jesus is saying, if you want blessing, if you really want blessing, notice what he says. It's not wrong to want blessing. You just have to pursue it in the right way. So if you want blessing, do it Jesus' way. And here's the key. He gets to to define what that blessing is. It's his definition, not ours. So here's what he says we're to do. Invite people who don't have the ability to help you climb the social ladder. Invite people who have nothing to bring other than their own neediness. Invite people who can't be manipulated so that you can appear important in the world's eyes. People like single moms. People like those that might not speak English. People maybe like senior citizens. Kids born into poverty. People with special needs. Maybe the mentally ill. Those who are marginalized because they just can't quite fit in. These people don't have social capital by which they can pay you back, right? And Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about getting a reward from temporal rich people. Why? Because there's greater blessing to be had. Don't worry about social capital. Worry about God capital. He says, you should want to hang out with people that are humbled in this world because why? Because that's where he hangs out. That's where God hangs out. That's where Jesus hangs out. So think about it like this. Jesus himself relates to marginalized people because for the gospel to be true in our life, he had to take on the most marginal, the life of the most marginal person ever. See, if you were crucified naked on a Roman cross, that was as marginalized as it gets. That was as broken and needy and, in a sense, cursed as it gets. And Jesus is saying, if you want the reward of fellowship with me for all eternity... Come with me to that place. Come with me to that place where I hang out and where people who get that hang out. Hang out with humble people. See, my reward, the reward of having God himself for eternity is so much greater than the temporal reward of rich, powerful, and cool people. 
So here's the question. Here's the question where if you say you're a Christian and you believe by faith that Christianity is true, then we have to ask this question and answer it by faith. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Is he just blowing smoke here? Does he know what he's talking about? Do we believe this promise of Jesus, that that his rewards are better? Are they really really better than than earthly rewards? Do I believe that rewards out there and that it's worth it? Doesn't it, let me ask you, think about it like this. Doesn't it make sense that if Jesus is the author of all creation and the Bible says that he is, and he says that my reward's better, that it would make sense to believe him? So do you believe him, and then can you wait for it? Because it's future tense, isn't it? See it there? It's future tense. You will be repaid. It might not be right now. But it will be. Jesus, I believe you, yes or no? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Am I going to trust him? So, does Jesus' heart for marginalized people take shape among us? Like, Jesus is being confrontational here. So we should probably, in some sense, feel confronted. Can you allow yourself to be confronted this morning and not harden your heart, but soften your heart to what he's saying? How does your heart interact with this text? Well, I want you to think about that. But let's move on to the next section, okay? Okay. And in this first section, he's talking about literal marginalized people, okay? And here's the point. He, he's showing that you know God and your own humility by how you hang out with humble people. Let me say that again. You show that you know God and your own humility by how you hang out with humble people. So these folks that he was talking to, they're prideful, so they don't hang out with humble people. They just want to hang out with other prideful people, right? But he, Jesus is saying, you don't know God. You don't know God's heart. Well, someone interacts with what he's saying then, and they speak up. And look at what they say. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it's like they're hearing that Jesus is talking about this future reality of being repaid in the kingdom of God, and this person's saying, Yeah. It's going to be awesome that, that day when we have food and fellowship, when we eat bread in, in God's eternal kingdom. That's going to be a great day. And it's like Jesus says, well, you want to know about that great day? I'll tell you about that great day, okay? You want to know who's going to be eating and drinking and breaking bread in, in God's kingdom? Who's going to feast with Jesus at the end of all known history? You want to know about that party? Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you. It's kind of like this. Look at verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes and of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now again, remember who he's talking to. Look back at verse 3. It's the, it's the Pharisees, the lawyers. These are religious elite people, powerful people, and sadly, prideful people. And they thought they were, again, righteous all on their own. They didn't embrace their spiritual poverty their spiritual neediness. They thought they could save themselves, again, through the ladder of good works, right? They didn't see the true depth of their sin, that they couldn't manage their sin or their salvation on their own. They, had, they didn't see their need for something external to come in and save them. They thought they could do it all internally, right? I got this. I can manage it. Why would we need radical grace from God as a gift? I don't need a gift. I got this. So they're not humbled. That's the point. And as a result, they don't have time for Jesus. They've got other priorities. Jesus is not their priority. They're not seeing him as, as, as something they need. And that's just what Jesus is showing here. Now, before he was talking about literal parties, right? The actual parties that we have. And now he's using the party as an illustration for a deeper point, as an analogy for a deeper point about pride that keeps us from the kingdom of God. Pride that keeps us from the eternal Jesus party, from the marriage supper of the Lamb for all eternity. So, so check it out. Here's what he's trying to, to, to display. Verse 16, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. Well, Jesus is the man. He invited people all the time to come to him, right? Come to me, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and drink. I'm the living water. Come to me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come to me because I'm the way and the truth and the life, right? So, so Jesus is constantly giving invitations in his life. But, but the religious elite are too prideful to hang out with poor marginalized people and are also too prideful to hang out with Jesus and see their need for him. So they got all these other priorities, and that's what he's, he's demonstrating in this story, right? They don't see their need to make Jesus a priority. I've, I got all this money, so I've been buying all this stuff. I've been buying some oxen. I've been buying a field. So my money's more important. And I have a wife, and she's awesome. She's, in fact, more awesome than you, Jesus, so she's the priority. So what does Jesus say about this? He says, in essence... If the religious elite are too uh, prideful for me, if they can't find time to make me a priority, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find those that know that I need to be their priority. I want you to find those that aren't trusting in their money or trusting in their relationships, but are so desperate that they're looking for me. They're so aware of their spiritual poverty, they're looking for me. And so that's what he says here in 21 and 22 and 23. So go find the, the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. 
And I want you to go even out to the highways and the hedges. That's where, like, the real marginalized people, they, they live on the street. They live on the highway. That, this would be code for, like, living in the underpass of the interstate, right? They, they don't have any money for houses. They've got to live in a hedge, right? For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about literal poor people here. He's using this as an illustration to talk about those who truly understand their spiritual poverty. Why would I say that? Because poor people can be prideful too and not see their need for Jesus. But he's saying all those, unlike the Pharisees and the lawyers and the religious elite who didn't see their need, all those who see their need, all those who understand the depth of their spiritual poverty and cry out to Jesus, help me, save me, I can't do this on my own. I trust you by faith. Go find those that know their humility and their need. And Jesus is just saying to a room full of religious people who thought they were not so spiritually poor that they needed Jesus, if you don't have time to make me a priority, if you're too good for me, then the kingdom party is not for you. And that's, that's shocking. I mean, this, he's being very confrontational here. These leaders thought they were able to have this banquet with Jesus present. Think about the irony of this. These leaders thought that they were able to have this party where they're sitting right now. Imagine it in your mind. That it was a sign of God's favor on them. Because if you were rich and wealthy and had important people like Jesus hanging out with you, that meant that you'd climb that ladder of good deeds really well, and God looked down upon that, and he said, oh, you're doing great, so I'm going to bless you even more. That's how their worldview operated. And we can't hang out with marginalized people because those people have been cursed by God. That's why they're marginalized. That's why they're poor and needy and weak. God has cursed them. They must have screwed up really bad, and that's why God is punishing them with this lifestyle they have. That was their mindset. And Jesus turns this on its head. And he's saying this party where we sit right now is not a sign of blessing, but might be a sign of cursing. This whole party might be a sign of your own pride that will keep you from ever entering the eternal kingdom party of Jesus. If all this stuff makes you think that you don't need me, that you're too good for me, and that you're good spiritually, you you manage it all on your own, evidenced by how you operate here at the expense of all these needy people, and this party might not be a sign of blessing. This party might be a sign of your cursing. And that true party that you long for, verse 15, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Yeah, they will be blessed, but will you be there? Because I just got done saying, verse 24, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So if your elite pride leads you away from Jesus and away from marginalized people, this shows that you don't truly understand God's kingdom. So what does this have to do with us? Number one, I want to ask you, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as having it all together? Or do you see yourself as spiritually needy? Do you you see yourself as spiritually desperate? Do you see that you can't manage your salvation or your life apart from God's grace? 
Do you see your need for a radical gift from God apart from your being able to somehow barter with God through your perceived good works? And secondly, if so, if you truly understand how spiritually poor you are apart from Christ, are you willing to associate with those who are marginalized in our world? See, an awareness of spiritual poverty should humble us, and humble people are never too good to hang out with and desire to meet the needs of those who are truly needy in the world. So all this to say is, I I think this sermon is a big vision sermon for how we operate at this church relationally. So if you're new here, one of the primary ways that we call people to be engaged at the Vine is coming on Sunday morning and then being a part of what we call a city group, okay? And city groups are just kind of like small groups that that seek to um, operate like family, where we can simply do life together, and the one another's of the New Testament can hopefully take shape there. They're not perfect, but we're just trying to give a good go at it because we believe that God has created us for relationships and relationships together. If you're not in a city group, we encourage you to go to the sign-up tab and get signed up. And if you're a member here, um, you are in a city group, or you should be in one, so please do that if you're not. But they're unique in that they're not just a typical Bible study, okay? We structure into the life of our little communities together the opportunity to demonstrate on a monthly basis that we understand Luke 14, that we understand what Jesus is getting at here. See, our small groups will never be a safe little Christian cul-de-sac a safe little holy huddle, right, that just looks inward. Now, see, we want to demonstrate to the city of Madison that we understand our collective spiritual poverty, our collective spiritual need, our collective spiritual desperation for him. And and since we don't need to feed our pride by hanging out with people who have it all together all the time, we're willing to hang out with those on the margins of society. We're not too good for marginalized people. How could we be? Because we know at the depth of our being what it means to be spiritually marginalized and poor. So how could we be prideful and fearful of those who are physically marginalized and poor? So this is why once a month, all of our city groups have a mandate to seek to reach out to some marginalized population in Madison. We structure this in as a value of our community life together because we think it's so important. Now, now we don't show up as the Savior. That's patronizing, right? We we show up simply to, to serve and be friends, and hopefully through the course of trust and relationships, we can tell about this hope that Jesus has come into our lives and exploded our hearts, and how could that not overflow to other people? especially those that are most needy. So so hear me now. We know this is not easy, okay? We've been doing this as a church from day one. This has been a value. And it has not been easy. 
there have been times when we've wanted to give up and just be like, ah, just chuck it. It's too hard and complicated and uncomfortable. For a lot of our groups, this continues to be a struggle. Let's just be honest about it. It pushes against our comfort zone, does it not? You guys know that if you're in a city group. But the kingdom of God has much wider borders than the borders of our tiny little comfort zones. And biblically, we've learned today that the blessing and reward of God lies beyond the borders of our small little comfort zones. So let me just plead with you, with us. Let's not give up on this. Let's not give up on this. I want to challenge us, even though it's hard, and even though it pushes against our comfort zone, that might be the zone where Jesus is. Do you want him? If, if you feel like there's a distance in your heart, like, I don't feel God in my life right now, well, maybe it's because you're not hanging out where he is. So I want to challenge you to make these service opportunities a priority. Like, Jesus seems to think, based on this text, that this should be a priority for us. So, so when your city group leader leads you into this, into whatever you're serving, man, let's just be supportive. Let's not be passively apathetic. Let's not be too busy, okay? Can we just collectively agree or covenant that we're going to stop saying how busy we are? We're all so busy. I get it. Everyone's busy, right? The issue is not busyness when it comes to this. The issue is priorities. Jesus doesn't care how busy you are. I promise. He cares about your priorities. And the question then is, are his priorities my priorities? If I say I follow Jesus, but I don't have any of his priorities, well, why is there that disconnect? Luke 14 seems to be his priority. And if there's no shred of evidence in your life that Luke 14 is showing up in any way, or, or you're just like thinking this whole serve thing through my city groups is just dumb and a waste of time, you have to ask yourself, is Jesus, does he know what he's talking about? If I'm too busy for Jesus... What does that say about my faith? Again, it's not busyness. If I told you you'd have a million dollars if you could just figure out how to get to California in the next three days, you wouldn't say that you're too busy. You would make it a priority, would you not? We're going to California, right? It's not busyness, it's priorities. So I just want us to be challenged and confronted by Jesus today. And maybe make this a priority and take precedent on our calendar. Let's remember who we are. This all goes back to identity. It doesn't go back to do more, try harder, and just like, oh, I'm just going to change my heart through effort to want this stuff. No, your heart gets changed by remembering who you are. Who does God say you are? If you're Christian here today, we are those who are spiritually poor, and God came and entered into that with us to love us and save us through his cross and resurrection. How could we not have that love so explode our hearts so that it would have to spill over into the needs of our city? And just because it's hard doesn't mean it's, it isn't God's will for us. 
And just because it's hard doesn't mean that there won't be a reward waiting for us. That's what the text says, right? And, and Jesus says, look to the reward. There's nothing wrong with that. See, God's heart is right here. He knows what he's talking about. And he knows what's best for us. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? Um, sometimes it's hard when you confront us um, to not harden our hearts. So Lord, would you help us to have soft hearts? Lord, I feel confronted. I feel convicted. So Lord, would, would you help me? Um, I believe, help my unbelief. May that be said among us this morning. We need your help. So Lord, would you um, grant us the faith to move into what you're calling us to by your word, through the power of your spirit, such that um, our church looks like those that trust your heart and trust your word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.